When was the last time you heard someone say, I love building my website? Yes, I'm yet to meet that person too. Now, if you're one of those copywriters who know you need a website, who've been putting it off because it's just too hard, and you know you're losing business to those who do have one, this is the episode for you. Sandy Taylor is a web developer. She's a designer with a passion for economics, SEO, psychology, and common sense. And today I talk to her about how copywriters can build their website. Hello, I'm Bernadette Schwert. I'm the founder of the Australian School of Copywriting and the head copywriting tutor at the Australian Writers' Centre. Now, we run Australia's most popular copywriting courses, and we help those who have a knack with words turn that passion into profit. As you'll discover in this call, Sandy's a web developer and a business coach, but she launched those careers after completing our copywriting course, Copywriting Essentials. So who knows where a short course in copywriting could lead you? We'll get started now by taking a look at that course that Sandy completed, Copywriting Essentials, by visiting writercenter.com.au forward slash essentials. And if you like this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Let's get started. Welcome to the podcast, Sandy. So lovely to have you. Thanks, Benedict. It's lovely to be here. Sandy, you know, like I do, that building a website for anybody, but let's talk about specifically for copywriters, is really challenging. Why do you think it is challenging? What stops people from actually getting a website built? Well, I think for people who aren't perhaps copywriters or even developers, when you only know of one way to do something, it's not difficult to just do that thing. But I think copywriters know that there are a million different ways that you can approach a copywriting project or a website copywriting project or a million different ways that you could build the website. Sometimes it's almost the agony of choice that stops them. The other issue, I think, is that a lot of copywriters tend to be more introverted than extroverted. And I think people like that find it difficult to talk about themselves. And what else? Well, I think the other issue is trying to see yourself as a business, as a commodity, when it really is all the qualities about yourself, not all of them you look at charitably, um, and trying to look at yourself objectively and come up with one proposition that you feel you can run with. Um, with a lot of the copywriters that I've worked with in the past, it's taken them ages to get to the point where they can sort of be objective about themselves and even get to the point where they can imagine how other people could see them um, in a way that doesn't put them out of their comfort zone, I'd say. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think, I mean, I've obviously been you know, doing things for a little while. So I'm so used to seeing my photo and things and I do have that reaction, which is a bit, oh, got to lose weight, got to get my roots done. You know, you have this really judgmental approach. But I think what would be great here maybe to share, and I think you, you agree, is you, you have to put yourself out there a little bit, right? Um, and I know you feel strongly about photos, for example, on a website. So talk to us about what you believe the, the role of a photo of the copywriter, not of their dog, you know, or their plant, 
but the actual photo of the copywriter. Why do you feel so strongly that that needs to be seen? Well, um, there is a lot of research, particularly by developmental psychologists. One of them is a very clever man called Bruce Hood about how infants particularly learn to interact with the world around them. And some of our earliest skills are around engaging with the adult who is holding us, presumably from an evolutionary point of view so that they didn't leave us and wander off. But our ability to engage with people, their faces, there is a whole section of the brain that deals with how to read the collective um, I suppose, elements of a face. And we can convey more with one facial gesture or even the look of someone's face than you could with, you know, 500 words of copy. So I think if you are trying to um, show people what sort of person you are and offer people the opportunity to engage with you, if you don't put your face on the website, that person's only got half the information. And quite often, we will know looking at other people, we could look at someone and go, that's my kind of person or not my kind of person. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that person, but, you know, we're all attracted to different kinds of people. And I think if we give people the opportunity to see what sort of person we are, they will almost make the decision for us. They will decide to engage with us or not. And it's not a bad thing. You know, it's not about, I think people assume I'm really mean and I make all of my website clients put their photo on their website because I think um, once you can put that person's face in a prominent position, you've almost done half the heavy lifting anyway. So I think it's, it's really important. People... You know, when we look at what people want, they're not coming to our website to, you know, tell us, look at how fabulous we are. They are coming for their own needs, for engagement, for help. They, they want to, they want connection and they want connection with real people. We all are very jaded when it comes to the amount of content. We've got to process our way through. That is, you know, some of it is people, some of it is faceless organisations. People now more than ever crave connection and you can't, expect people to connect with you if you don't meet them halfway and at least put your face on your website. It's interesting. I'll, I'll play devil's advocate here because I've had students of mine who are maybe not comfortable with their appearance. Um, they feel that they're too old, you know, and that, that's another story about age, et cetera, which we won't necessarily cover right now. But what do you say to someone who really, really doesn't want to do that, right? And that's just their reality. They don't want to do that. What do you say? What do you put there instead? Well, I think I've never lost an argument yet <laughs> because I try and explain to people that, you know, I, I sort of prompt them through a, a thinking process and, and, you know, when you think of your own mother, you don't, you know, maybe your mother isn't the most beautiful person you've ever met. Maybe she's not the youngest. Maybe she's not, you know, couldn't look like a model, but when you look at your mother, you see the love shining out of her eyes. You see the, you know, the years on her, but it's the years of wisdom, the years of knowledge. You know, people aren't, it's not Tinder. People are not coming to find a date. If they're looking for a copywriter, they don't want somebody who looks 18 and in a bikini because she's, she may not be, I won't 
make judgments about anybody, but, you know, she may not be the best person to write their copy, whereas somebody who is a bit older, age is a good thing for copywriters because people don't just want someone who can string together a sentence. They want someone who brings life experience, common sense, knowledge of the world. They want someone with all of those qualities. Now, you kind of can't have it both ways. You can't be that, you know, have all this worldly wisdom and be 22. Um, unless you are writing about things that 22-year-olds would be interested in. But, you know, that's not the general rule. If you are writing about things that most people are interested in or car insurance or whatever it is, it assumes a level of life experience. So age is a good thing. And people should, you know, distinguish between, um, you know, looking old and having maturity. And I think getting somebody to help you look your best. We all know lighting is the best friend of any woman. And, you know, if you're feeling self-conscious about how you look through your age or your whatever, for whatever reasons, it just means you need to find a skilled photographer with good lighting who will put you at ease, to put you at your best. And I've seen people who I wouldn't, you know, describe as gorgeous, not, you know, in a model sense, just look beautiful in the way that the warmth of someone can shine out of a photo when a skilled photographer puts them at their ease and captures them in a way that really gets shows the beauty their beauty as a mm. human and I think everybody has that it doesn't matter what they think about themselves and I, I think once people start looking around at other people and they realize that's not what people are judging me on is whether I look young or attractive or, or whatever I think most people get it. Yeah. Well, we all can't be supermodels, can we, Sandy? Present <laughs> 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 company included here right now. Not you, I'm talking about me. Um, so let's talk about niches, right, because that's the other question I get asked all the time. Oh, by the way, just on the ageing thing, even though this wasn't a topic about ageing, I completely agree with you that as copywriters, it is one of the few occupations that rewards age and experience. Mm -hmm. And if you're 60, 70, whatever the age might be, um, you have that night, that knowledge, that life experience that you know a 22 year old can't. That doesn't say a 22 year old can't do the job. It just means that if you're in the market for retirement homes, cruises, you know, um, as you say, insurance for seniors or whatever it might be, or you know, you're looking to get into a nursing home or NDIS, whatever the topic is, you are the perfect person to be writing. And I say that to my students a lot that you've got to go from where you are. You know, look at writing content for the, the services that you are already interested in because you're the target audience. But let's talk about the niche because I know a lot of copywriters say to me, should I niche from the get go? And if I do, how? Because I don't have any niche to speak of other than maybe the, the background that I've had, or do I just become a generalist, you know, because I don't really want to lose out on the opportunity of work um, if someone comes to their website and it doesn't reveal that, you know, they can do that thing because they've, you know, taken on a different tack. I didn't say that very well, but I think you get my drift. Do we niche or not? Oh, no, I totally get your drift. And um, if I could put a 40-foot banner with neon signs on it outside my office, it would be niches or everything. I think people um, think of niches in the wrong way or they don't think about them deeply enough. They assume that if you pick a niche, it means something like I only work with hairdressers or life insurance companies or mechanics or whatever. I think 
niches are, if you almost, I almost describe them, I normally illustrate them with a Venn diagram, where if you had to overlay all the bits about yourself, there will be a little bit that intersects and that is your niche. Now, the things that factor into a niche are past work experience, location, gender, uh, personality type, interests. Um, quite often, the things that you look at about yourself, for example, you might have a child with a disability. You might have had someone you love um, die early. Um, whatever the things in your past or your present that really, you know, that you can talk about all day, those are the things that should go into the pot when you're working on what your niche is. I always encourage people to think about their niche firstly, rather than specific industries, firstly, what kind of people really bug you? Who do you not like spending time with? What are the issues in the world that really, you know, get up your nose? And use those as factors to discount groups that you wouldn't like to work with. So as an example, I came into initially building websites and then writing copy. Um, and although I'm interested in horses, I've got horses and I'm involved in a lot of different things related to horses, I ended up not doing very much work in the horse industry for a number of um, reasons. But one of the things, when I look across at all the clients who I have worked with, enjoyed working with, and the reason that people recommend me is not because I know something about horses, but because I'm really patient. I'd never thought that about myself, but a lot of people said to me, you're really patient. You listen to what we've got to say, and you don't try to hurry us along. You listen to what we've got to say, and then you help us make sense of it all. And it was specifically small business owners because I really didn't like corporate. I hated it. I, I got out of it as quickly as I could. So for me, I never aspired to working on big jobs for corporates or big companies because I just can't deal with the drama. So my niche then became pretty much any industry, generally older people who didn't know a lot about marketing or digital and who appreciated someone who would take the time. So, you know, Whatever it is that you don't like or that you do like, because I think passion is another thing that can really um, give you a very powerful niche. It might be um, passion for, I don't know, ethical brands or doing things a better way or, you know, the things that you really care about. I would say write all of those things down, the things you do like, the things you don't like. Try and discount the ones that you really don't like way up front. And then do all the work that comes along, do everything, because you only figure out what you do and don't like once you're actually doing the work. You know, I think as a new copywriter, you come in and you think, you know, so-and-so is working with this big brand and they're, you know, doing all this important work and here I am working with the hairdresser down the road. Well, you know, I think if you don't like working with, I suppose, in the corporate space or in, in a very competitive environment, don't try and do work that makes you uncomfortable, puts you in an uncomfortable place. Just use that information as a way to really focus who you work with because if you work with people you like working with and who like working with you, you will be successful. Whereas if you are trying to 
be something you are not just because you think that's what's expected it never works well. So mm. that's how I look at a niche. Mm. I love that, Sandy. It's really an, an interesting way of looking at it. And, and I'll just unpack that a little because there's a lot that you said in there. Um, but firstly, about sometimes the glamour brands are not all they're cracked up to be. For a start, they don't pay very well. And I'm, I'm being really general because everything's got an exception, of course. But, you know, glamour, sport, film, no music notoriously underpaid because people think well you've got a passion therefore you should write for free or write for a discount mm. but on the other side some of the the best jobs i've had over the years have been the most boring products but the most lucrative because you know it's packaging or engineering or bricks you know tires and and i honestly believe as a copywriter that you can find interest in anything and okay some people are naturally attracted to certain topics but i think i like the challenge of thinking i know nothing about this what's important about this let me get into this Definitely. world so you know don't discount the non-glamour industries because they're not very well serviced by copywriters in general um, and tend they, they tend to be b2b to business to business so yeah, you know, just keep your keep your your mind open. I think um, when you're thinking about niching. But I'm just curious. I have a lot of students, Sandy, who um, maybe it's because the nature of their age, and I'm sort of in this age bracket too, where they're very attracted to say aged care, dementia. Their mum is going through that terrible experience, and they're living this experience of, mm. and they can't actually get their head out of it. And they do want to firstly work in that sector because they they feel passionate but also they believe that, um, you know, that, that's what they're good at. So if that was the case, what kind of niche would you recommend someone like that? How would that look, that kind of niche, if that was the area that they were passionate in for, let's say, you know, the next couple of years? Well, I think, you know, there's certainly the, the, literally the most valuable thing you can have in your arsenal is interest, passion, curiosity, call it what you will. Um, there is literally not enough money in the world to pay me to work on, for example, mechanical things, car things. I, I literally could not bring myself to do it, whereas areas that I know not much about but I'm curious about or I could find the curiosity, um, especially if it's working for the right people, you know, working with the right people. I think people are the most the, the key thing there. I think... Whatever your area, say, for example, I think you well, you can be a generalist that works in a particular way. So, for example, if someone wanted to work or wanted to be open um, to work in aged care, dementia, that sort of thing, I think they would, for a start, advertise the fact that they are perhaps older, that they work in service industries, that they are interested in um, you know, our ageing population, I think you can have that messaging about the things you care about that make it obvious or make you a more obvious choice than someone who talks about other things. You know, if you had to line up three copywriters' websites, one was talking about glamour brands and had them with half a metre eyelashes, another person who had, you know, pictures of high-performance cars and working for an ad agency, and then somebody who has that messaging of, um, you know, caring about an ageing population, being, um, changing the, the narrative, you know, all of the, the things around that, I think you can make yourself a more obvious choice, can't you? I think that's a really lovely way of doing it uh, because you, you're basically chunking up a bit 
you're not saying I work with these particular companies. I'm, <laughs> I'm saying I, these are the topics and the, my curiosities, my interests is where I lie. And I think that keeps it broad yet narrow if that is possible. Absolutely. And I think, you know, copywriters in particular, one of my particular um, fascinations is um, a field called behavioural economics, which is essentially around understanding why people make the choices they do, particularly why they choose to spend their money in ways that they do, and how we determine value, how we understand value. is I find it endlessly fascinating. Now, copywriters, regardless of how good they are, who they're working with, I think most of them undervalue their role in society. Copywriters really are a fairly new breed. And I see copywriters as something of a practical artist or a cultural storyteller. Since the start of ad agencies, copywriters have been helping us cover the new car or the half a metre eyelashes or the lifestyle. And in the past, those have all been squarely focused on capitalistic goals. But I think people think differently, you know, certainly since COVID, um, people have really started to evaluate or reevaluate what's important. And I think copywriters in particular, if they take the opportunity to upskill in understanding how people make decisions, how we see the world, how you can interpret people's behaviour um, more constructively. I think copywriters, more than policymakers, more than big brands, there is an opportunity for those people to change the narrative and for, for them to guide us on perhaps some better paths than the ones we've been in the past. You've just got to look at climate change. You know, we keep talking about climate change in this negative context, this doomsday context, and then wondering why people are paralysed into indecision. And when we understand why people don't make decisions because they don't know what to do, they are literally terrified into, into you know, just not making no decision. I think when, when copywriters, if copywriters understood how we can guide people to make better decisions, reframing it as climate evolution, helping people see how they can be part of the solution, helping people identify as someone who has the power to change their own and everybody's destiny. I think there are, there are huge opportunities for copywriters, in my view. I love that, Sandy. That's some beautiful phrasing coming out, you know, the cultural storyteller, the practical artist. I love it. <laughs> and I think what you've done there, you've really elevated what copywriting truly is because people, I think, underestimate, one, how easy it is it's not it's a learnt skill it requires a whole bunch of different skills within it you know questioning listening empathy curiosity all that kind of stuff subject matter knowledge but the thing I was really interested in what you're talking about there was also one of the the, the questions I get a lot from people is I don't want to be a copywriter because I don't want to sell I don't like selling stuff and I'm at pains to say well you don't have to Right, And it's, it's exactly what you're saying, that we're now in this next era of we're all people are pretty savvy, right? No one can really be sold anything, I don't think, anymore. Um, they've got access to information where you didn't have access to information in the past. But I think what, what we're talking about here is 
if you have a passion for something and you really want to help that organization convey their story, their points of difference, you know, it's not about saying, hey, buy this. It's just finding another way of, you know, helping that organization, you know, showcase that, you know, their values, their differences, you know, their, their points of view. So I think when we talk about copywriting, we need to now expand what that actually is. Mm-hmm. Let's expand the definition. It's about, as you say, changing the narrative. And I think it takes the focus off people saying, I've got to write this internet, you know, sales letter, 3,000 words, you know. It, it's not about that all the time or even most of the time. That's kind of old school in some respects, that, those long spammy things. Now it's more about tell me a story, you know. Absolutely. What Oh, absolutely. Look, I think the days of sales letters and, you know, people are far smarter than that. But if there's a book that I can recommend to anyone as a great starting point to behavioural economics, it's called Predictably Irrational by a guy called Dan O'Reilly. And I think... The biggest takeaway that I've had from behavioural economics has been that people don't judge value, they don't make decisions in the logical way we think they do. And I think people who don't want to be copywriters because they don't want to sell, I think that's only part of it. I think selling what is the question. Anyone can be persuaded to do whatever you want them to do pretty much. Um, We've all been doing things for years because we've literally been persuaded to do it, a lot of it without our knowledge. There is so much about how our world works that is set up to make us do what we want, you know, what someone wants us to do to the extent that we now have most of the governments actually have a behavioural science or behavioural change department that actually looks at how we end up in the situations we end up with. For example, if you put um, something like a choice on a life insurance form, whether you leave it as checked or unchecked, whatever the default choices that you set up in any kind of choice process, we people have ended up in situations that's not ideal only because of you know bureaucracy or because that's the way things have, have been laid out. But I think when you lay out someone's options, whether it's in a website journey, whether it's in a sales letter, whatever it is, there are ways of getting people to do what you want them to do. Now, brands have been doing that to get people to buy their stuff. But what I'm suggesting is there are ways of getting people to do things that are better for them and for the planet, not to be manipulative, but because there is a better way for all of us to live. I mean, you know, you, you think about something like obesity. We we assume that people have control over all their decisions about food. And that's a really nice idea to have, but it kind of doesn't work like that. I mean, if, if you're in, for example, my town, I live in a little town outside there. If you want to find something unhealthy to eat, that's really easy. There are about four drive-through places where I could get a burger. If I wanted to get something healthy, I've actually got to go and buy everything from the shop, take it to my house, make it and eat it. How we structure decisions, whether it's in the way that we sell things, the way that we create our world, those are what are going to produce the outcomes we've got. And copywriters, understanding how that works, how you can so easily change the outcome just by restructuring, reframing, um, assigning different values, 
you know, they can have, as I said, they can have a far bigger impact than I think they actually realise. I, I heartily agree. And we've gone way off topic, right? But I'm loving oh, it. Sorry. No, 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 no apologies needed. I love it. I just, we weren't <laughs> expecting a behavioural um, economist a discussion, but I think it's really, really relevant. So no apologies needed at all, Sandy. I love it. Uh, but let, let's do go back to the, um, the topic of websites because yes. I think, you know, it's a great frame what you've just given, which is, well, what are you selling? What are you about? How are you different? You know, we've we've you know we've talked earlier um, about websites that you've done for copywriters where they have an ethical purpose. You know, this is just offline before the, the course uh, before the call started. You know, one woman's an ethical copywriter, purpose driven. So her whole website it didn't say that every single page, but there was just this this idea and this value seeded throughout. And I know you feel strongly that if you're a copywriter then you've got to really showcase you, your point of difference, you know, your values, your, your interests. So let's talk about the next step, which I know a lot of people get a bit freaked out by, which is the tech side. Um, the question I get asked a lot, WordPress, Wix or Weebly, what do you prefer to work in? Look, I prefer to work in WordPress because it gives me the ability to control most things about the website but I honestly believe that a website you are going to build and use is better than any other website. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about it. And if you are going to, if you, are, if you don't have a budget to hire someone and you are going to build a website on Wix and build it in a way that it's going to work for you, then I think that's a great website. I think people get far too um, caught up in all the nitty gritty of, um, you know, how fast the page speed you know how the, the page load speed all the technicalities that really only become important if you are building a website for you know Rio Tinto or Facebook but for a one-person site I really think a lot of those things are immaterial and finding a platform that you feel comfortable using or finding someone who can help you and work with you who can recommend something that they can support you on, I think is better than the alternatives. Awesome. So once you've established whether it's WordPress or whatever, talk to me about the page builder process because I know you you prefer Divi and Elementor. So for people who have got no idea what I'm talking about, can you just talk us through what that means to them? Sure. So um, a, web, uh, a website is basically content held together um, in the same way that a, you know, a book would be. So in the context of a website, WordPress, for example, um, the WordPress part of a website is, is like um, the skeleton of an animal. The skeleton holds everything together and um, keeps it all where it's supposed to be. The, the muscles of the body, you could compare to the page builder or the theme. People normally call them themes, but I find the word theme can be misleading because people assume that it's sort of a color scheme or the way it looks it could be more accurately described as a page builder. And then the third element you've got are the plugins, which are pretty much like the nerve endings, which give the website the capacity to do various things. Plugins can include um, functionality for security, site speed, an online shop. There's literally no limit to the plugins. And with WordPress, one of the advantages is that you can literally build in whatever capacity you like through paid or free plugins. So just going back to the page builder for a second, um, in years gone past, if you built a website, it all had to be created in code. But 
as we went along, um, some companies got very clever and made available more of a visual interface or a page builder, which people who were not technical could use to create a site and then the pages within the site. Essentially, if you can use Facebook or Word, you can use a page builder once you kind of get a feeling for the general logic behind it all. What it lets you do is drag and drop different elements within a page to, to create what you're after, combinations of text, images, links to video, whatever it is. But the page builder really makes it easy to make the site look like what you want it to look like. Now, if you were building um, a, a very high-performance site, you wouldn't choose one of the page builders like Divi, which are aimed at non-technical people. You would use something that was a lot faster loading. But if you were a one-person copywriter, I don't think you need to worry about high traffic loads. I think you need to worry a lot more about, is this something that I can use and work with? Now, one of the advantages of something like Divi, for example, I build websites in, in using Divi mostly because my clients are all one-person businesses. I want them to be able to have the confidence to use Divi and to make adjustments to their site because a website's not supposed to be like a monument that's erected once and never touched again. It's supposed to be something that is updated and, and I suppose that reflects the journey of the business. So the other good thing about sites like Divi or page builders like Divi is that there is a really active Facebook group. They've got a million and one tutorials on YouTube so that even if you were having a crack at doing it yourself, there is no end of help um, to help you actually do that. So you mentioned if you did have a high performance site or it wasn't just a one person one, what kind of page builder would you recommend there? Well, slightly up the food chain would be something like Elementor, which is, um, you know, quite suitable for mid-range sites. But a lot of the developers prefer um, page builders like Oxygen or themes like Oxygen. There are some sort of newer brand ones that have got less code involved in the sort of back-end setup so that everything just loads much faster. But they are not as easy to use as something like Divi is. Um, and then further on than that would be custom sites that are custom builds, but that require a lot of custom maintenance to keep them you know, ticking, which is obviously that's what you want to avoid as a one-person business. Great, great advice. Let's talk about the basic plugins, you know, the basic pages that a copywriter would need on their website. Can you talk us through that, please? Sure. So I normally recommend, as I said, that people use a premium theme like with uh, Divi or Elementor. But when it comes to plugins, you can literally build an entire website that runs beautifully using only free plugins. Um, and I normally encourage people to really, you know, a plugin has to really be very important to what you're doing to justify um, getting a premium version or paid version. So you would always have the basic plugins. I hope I remember them all off the top of my head, but you would always have a plugin for security, website security. You would have one for um, speed or uh, loading, faster loading times. You would generally have one for SEO. Um, that one is normally um, Yoast is one of the favorites there. And it just makes the process of making your website more SEO friendly easier. 
you would have one, um, what are the other common ones? You might have one for spam. Oh, you would definitely have one to connect your website to your free Google Analytics profile. And it acts like a pipeline backwards and forwards. Um, those are the main ones that you would put on every single website. Oh, another one, an image optimization plugin. You would have one. Um, it's cl closely related to your site's feed, but um, optimizing your images so that they are as squished as they can be, as small, but as fast loading. Because I think that's one of the things that I see most often with sites that are badly built or homemade is images that are just way too big and take way too long to load. Because site speed, you know, everything centers on an efficient um, efficient structure and, and that really starts with images, it's the size of images. That's awesome. So let's talk a bit about structure and what you've seen that makes a site load more quickly. What, what little tips there do you recommend, just in case someone is doing it themselves here? No problem. Okay, so once again, with speed, looking at, at everything you plan on putting into a site and where you're going to place those things. Um, the rule of thumb is that any image you're going to put on your site should never really be bigger than about 200 KB at the, at the biggest you certainly don't want two or three meg images as your home banner image. So you want them nice and small. You also don't want any video pasted directly into your site. If you're going to have video, have it hosted elsewhere like YouTube, Vimeo, Wistia, any of the um, those sites and embed a link to them so that your site is only establishing the link but not loading the whole massive video file. Also, thinking about where you place your big items, you know, if you've got, for example, a giant big lead magnet that's like three meg, thinking about bigger than that, thinking about what someone's going to have to download and where they're going to be downloading it to, especially if they're accessing your site from a mobile device. Um, and then placement. If you're going to have something which you know is going to be big in size or a lot of different images, considering placing them below the fold so that your page can load and there's something to look at and anything that's larger you can put further down the page. So, for example, video, if you've got a big block of video, not having it in the banner, having it further down so that because the, the page as it loads, it kind of loads from top to bottom and the last thing you want is that kind of waiting, waiting, waiting because you also, if people are in an area where they don't have great mobile uh, uh, internet coverage, you you know, site speed, I don't say site speed is the most important, but people have a patience threshold. And if your site takes too long to load, they will just leave. Mm, awesome. Let's talk about what needs to go above the fold and indeed what is the fold? Uh, good question. Now, that's a question that doesn't have absolute answers because Above the fold and below the fold can look different depending on the device that you're looking at. Um, where those page breaks sit on a big screen compared to a little mobile can vary, which is why responsive design, which is designing a website that can be accessed successfully from any device, is more art than science. But 
what it boils down to is that when a page loads, and particularly important pages, home pages, sales pages, landing pages, you want people to have to do the minimum amount of scrolling before they know whether they're in the right place or not. So making sure that when someone arrives at your homepage, for example, they can see a glimmer of what is below so that they can land and have an impression immediately. I try and have my uh, homepages as being able to see my banner image, my banner headline, and the start of the navigation options below so that it almost tells them where they are and what they're doing there. And the navigation options below invite them to scroll. Um, so placement, it's, it's about kind of making sure that things are in view as soon as you land and that there is enough information for people to make a decision. Am I staying and scrolling or am I out of here? Awesome. And in terms of mobile first versus desktop first, when people are thinking about writing their copy for their own copywriting website or indeed for a client, what should they be focusing on first? Because they're quite different modalities, aren't they, or formats? They are. Now, unfortunately, with the Google, you used to have uh, put a greater weighting on your desktop site, the performance of your desktop site over your mobile site. But in one of the recent updates, it's now switched over to mobile first, which means that how people interact with your mobile site um, carries more weight than your desktop site. What this means is that if you, for example, view a website on a big 27-inch desktop screen, the amount of scrolling it takes to read 400 words is a lot less than the amount of scrolling it takes to read 400 words on a mobile phone, for example. So when you're writing, it's really important to think about um, how far someone has got to scroll until they get to the place where they can do what you actually want them to do in the first place. If your call to action is 25 scrolls down on a mobile, you have to question whether they're actually going to do that. Now, that's not to say that you're not going to put any of those words on, but I think making provision for them to get out or opt out or make a decision or move on to the next step without making them sit through all of that copy is a good idea. Um, it also means that you may, for example, have areas on your desktop that you disable or that you don't have people look at if you know that they're not going to work on a, on a mobile device. And most page builders, Divi can do it, most of them can do it, in fact, all of them can do it. They can all um, give you the capacity to disable different modules of text, images, whatever it is, uh, rows or sections, depending on the device you're looking at them at. So you can actually control the experience without any code. It's literally just ticks and checks that you can put in. I think that's really important because um, if you know that mobile first is important for Google, it's important for your customers, then you write your copy accordingly. So just, just on that, Sandy, any tips for when you're writing copy for your own website as a copywriter? Because if you're writing it for mobile and then eventually it's going to be seen on a desktop, how do you actually write the copy for the, for the mobile version when you know that at some point it will be seen on desktop? You know, how do you account for the copy that you want to include on the desktop version? I think user intent is probably 
uh, the most important question there. Now, when you look at any website on Google Analytics, you can see the percentage of people that access that site on a desktop, on a tablet, or on a mobile. When you're designing a site, you also have a fair idea of how your audience is going to access your content. For example, if you are writing the content for a restaurant website, there's a fair chance that the number of people who are going to access that on mobile is pretty high because they're going to look at the website when they're out and about and they're going to go, you know, what's it like? Is it what we want to do? And they will make the decision and go straight away. If you're writing the content for a copywriting website or an engineering website or something that is less of an impulse purchase than, say, you know, coffee or dinner, you will find that the number of people who access it on a desktop is a lot higher. For example, if I look at the copywriter websites, my own and, and um, other copywriter sites that I've done, the desktop views can be as high as sort of 70 or 80%. Um, some of that overlaps with different kinds of tablets that people use um, because some of the smaller desktops can almost be the same size as some of the bigger tablets. So there's a bit of an overlap there. I almost put tablets and desktops in the same category. Um, but if you've got a lot of complicated or technical stuff on your site, the likelihood is people are not going to be accessing it on their mobile. They're going to sit down and look at it on a big screen. So I think thinking through what kind of content you've got on there, what you're actually asking people to do, and then structuring it accordingly. If there is any doubt as to the overlap, I think summarising or making it easy to navigate, scan through the content at high speed as you would if you were scrolling on a mobile. So having kind of, um, you know, numbering or some sort of icon that, you know, visual separation of content instead of giant big blocks of text. That is the enemy of, of web copy is giant big blocks of text because that is repellent. Breaking it up, highlighting bits, that is the whole point of a website is to actually take copy, break it up in such a way like a cupcake, making it um, accessible, appealing, and giving people enough of an incentive to actually get started and have a go. Yeah, really well said. Um, just talk to me about design, you know, because a lot of people go, I don't know what my website needs to look like, and let's say they're doing it themselves. Um, are there any websites that you recommend or sort of aggregated, you know, sort of platforms where people can go and look at uh, designs that might be suitable for them so that they can get some inspiration so they kind of write copy based on, you know, the actual design that's been created? Okay, so there's two things in that question that I'll answer. One of them is if you are building your own website or if you are building a website where you don't have all the, where you almost want to keep the emotion out of it to begin with, I find one of the best ways to structure your content is to do a straight wireframe first. So say you're building your own website, you have no colour on it, you have no images on it, just placeholder text and you just place your images. You can easily do that using oh, any of them, Wix, Divi, any of those. And you almost don't allow yourself to bring in visuals because that's just eye candy. That gets people off on a tangent and they spend three days trying to get the right shade of pink instead of focusing on the message. If it's you, take all the distractions out and just write the content just place it and move it around until it makes sense from a readability point of view. 
The other thing there is that most of the, um, for example, Divi have a website or someone else has done one. It's called Divi Theme Examples. And you can scroll through heaps of websites that are great examples of what the theme can deliver for different um, industries. I've got a few sites I've designed that have actually been picked up on that site. And I actually often get people contact me from those examples. So the other thing, and this is one of my golden tips with big neon lights around it, is that if you don't know where to start with the visuals, I actually do this quite often. I've got a, um, a graphic designer that I work with. She and I actually went to school together. She's in South Africa, and she is an absolute whiz at branding. When I'm really close to a project and there's so much that I can't kind of get a glimpse, normally when I'm working with someone, I'll get this kind of, visual in my head of, of, to quote the castle, a vibe of what I think it could look like, what I'm aiming for. And sometimes I just don't get it. And what I do with her, and you could do with any graphic designer who is good at branding and UX, is I get her to do me a static mock-up of one page. So using all the elements that the client has sent, you could send all of your elements to a graphic designer, especially if you've already got a relationship with one who has maybe done your logo, has done whatever. They won't charge you very much to do a static mock-up. And it's literally from the middle of the homepage up. So a banner, you know, a bit of a starting point of an, an overall look that you could aim for. Once you've got that, it's like that starting point because once you know what you're aiming for, Getting a lead, it's a bit like editing is so much easier than writing the first draft. Writing the first draft is just like, you know, so hard. Sometimes it feels like you're, you know, trying to get blood out of a stone. But once you've got something to work with, editing it and shaping it, that's like easy peasy. So getting a graphic designer to give you a mock-up um, is one of the best ways that anybody who is either not very good with design or is doing their own and is finding it hard to get a, a lead, that is a good way to start. That is awesome. And just for those listening who don't know what user intent is, could you just explain that for us? Sure. So um, user intent or user experience? Do both. Do both. Okay. So user intent, I think I always try and think about when I'm building a website, what is the person actually coming here to do? They are not, say it's my own website, they're not coming to see how fabulous I look or how marvellous I am. They are actually coming to find someone to help them with a problem that they have. What does the problem look like to them? What does the solution look like to them? It looks like someone who is sympathetic, someone who can boil it down into what the solution is, someone who can ahead of time tell them what their options are. So, you know, when you consider user intent, the, the first thing that jumps out of your head is something like a pricing page. Don't make people ask for a quote. Ring and have a conversation and ask for a quote. Nobody wants to do that. They want to know, can they afford you? Do you work with people like them? Do you solve problems like the ones they've got? And always try and think about if I was someone, almost put yourself in the shoes of, of a client, someone you've worked with, someone who you would consider to be your ideal client. And if you haven't got any of those, someone who you know that would make a great client. Almost imagine them talking and, and saying to you, oh, you know, I can't believe I've got this problem with I need to come up with copy and I don't even know where to start. Almost think about it from their point of view. What would success look like to them? User intent is one of the best ways to make sure that you stay on track. User experience is about how somebody, a user, 
interacts with your site. If you've ever gone to most government websites, you will know what not to aim for. Having to go through, you know, 25 pages to find what you're looking for, calling things what they are, having a structure where someone can instantly recognize, I just want to ring the person, how do I find that? Thinking through, you know, and putting things where people expect to find them and where they are logical to find and making it easy for people. Um, don't make yourself, you know, really don't make yourself hard to um, deal with. My rule of thumb, make it easy, make it obvious. Sandy, I think that's a really fantastic way to, to, to end. You are a mine of information. And I should also add that you were a copywriter. You are now a web developer. You were many things before that in the finance world and you know, you, you come with a, an extraordinary business background that is, um, you know, very valuable for people who are trying to sort out what they are trying to do. So you're not just a, a geeky web developer, you know, you're more than that. No, and I must point out that at the start of my business journey, I did one of your copywriting courses and it taught me so much about the questions to ask when you want to get someone interested in what you've got to say. And I think Benedict, what you teach about copywriting applies equally to all areas of marketing. If you um, are asking the right questions, just finding the equivalents in the other disciplines, you know, is fairly easy. But I think you get people off on the right foot. So, you know, anyone who is already a client of yours or a fan of yours is, is already on the right track. <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely to hear. And it's really inspiring to see what you've done, uh, you know, with your career too, Sandy. You know, you've really taken something and run with it. And good luck. Thank you so much, Sandy. Great stuff. <laughs> Thanks for your time, Bernadette. <laughs> your website build doesn't have to be hard, but it does have to be done. Follow Sandy's advice and you'll be on your way to creating the website that will help you become a copywriter in demand. You also heard that Sandy got started in the world of copywriting by doing our course, Copywriting Essentials. If you'd like to get started, check out writercenter.com.au forward slash essentials. Now, maybe you're like Sandy and you're already working as a copywriter or a digital marketer and you just want to get better at what you do, work smarter not harder, and streamline what you're currently doing so you could build your confidence. If so, check out Copy Club, Australia's most innovative and dynamic community for copywriters. To find out more, check out copyclub.com.au. Now, I found this lovely little phrase that I thought was so appropriate as my sort of um, motto of the day, and it went like this. I don't need to write down that story idea. It's so unique, I never forget it. Well, it was in fact so unique, she never remembered it again. <laughs> Always keep a pen by the bed. And my last quote for the day is, don't give up what you want most for what you want now. That's it from me. All the best. <laughs>